Hello everyone, welcome back to the Green and Milner show here on Newcastle Fans TV. And what a guest we've just interviewed this afternoon, or, well, it is this afternoon as we're talking, but you might be watching this in the morning if you're from Australia. Or in the Listening to it US. even, because it's a podcast, not a video, mate. This is why I need you here sometimes, I really do. <laughs> no one ever. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast today. It is with the Athletics' Chris Woff. Chris is a highly respected journalist who has been covering Newcastle for a, a number of years now, and he is still quite young, actually, Sam. So he's mm. he, even though he's probably not been in this game as long as others, he's definitely seen a lot at Newcastle United Football Club. Yeah, um, real, real treat for Newcastle fans listening to this for the next forty-five minutes because this is this is this is gold. Um, Really enjoyable interview this one was. Um, I mentioned early in the interview that I'm, when I first started with Newcastle Fans TV, I sent Chris uh, a few of my articles that I wrote and a couple of my early interviews I did with like Warren Barton, and he was kind enough to give me feedback on it. So got a lot of time for Chris, um, top, top bloke. And obviously he's been on the channel before, but not with um, me and yourself on this show, Johnny. So yeah, really good. Um some real interesting nuggets that um will come out over the next forty five minutes or so. Yeah, obviously when this has been recorded we've literally just come off a defeat against Arsenal. Um and the pressure is on Steve Bruce by the time this comes out as a podcast, will Steve Steve Bruce still be the manager of Newcastle United? That'll be uh, an interesting uh development. But we've we've talked transfers, we talk the Arsenal game, we talk Steve Bruce's future, Mike Ashley gets a mention, and the, the takeover. We, we've we been very quiet on the takeover because we don't know enough. We don't know enough. Me and Sam don't. We don't portray that we do. But Chris knows a little bit more. So we try to poke and see if we can get a little bit more out of him. And he, he certainly uh, delivered with an update for Newcastle United fans. And that's um, it was very interesting, to say the least. But Sam, there was no stone unturned, was there? No. Um, no, there wasn't. As you as you'll come to hear, whatever we asked, he he answered to the to the fullest. Um, I just love to wake up one morning to see this takeover done and this that and the other. Because again, we don't pretend to be in the know because we're not. We're fans the same as everyone else listening to this. So. I'd just love to wake up one morning and it all be done and sorted. I don't want to, months on end of ongoing rumours don't don't do anyone any good like it they did uh, last year. So, but yeah, it's, fingers crossed. We live in hope as always, don't we? That word hope gets mentioned a lot towards the end, but uh, no spoilers yeah. with that one. No spoilers. We'll uh, let you listen to the podcast as I was correctly. <laughs> told off by uh, Mr Mulner in regards to watching and listening but I'll tell you what you can do you can uh, get 8 cans of uh, beer 52's lager beer IPA for £5.95 and 2021 hasn't disappointed if you're a beer 52 fan like myself and Sam so if you want to get the latest uh, beer 52 beers you're more than welcome to the website is www. I think I said it four times there, www.beer52.com forward slash NFTV. Lovely stuff. <laughs> I know, just perfect, wasn't it? <laughs> this is what our introductions are like on the Green and Wellness show when you listen Off to the us. Off the cuff, vibe, badinage, 
That's what it's all about. This is this is just just because we're just so chilled and relaxed broadcasters. This is this is what you get. Just slick silk. <laughs> slick silk, and that's not even talking about uh, Greenwood All Mill in regards to that. But I'll tell you who was very good, and that was Chris Worth, and that is our next podcast. So sit back, relax, and it's the Greenwood All Mill show with the Athletics Chris Worth. Hello everyone, welcome back to Newcastle Fans TV. It's the Greenwood and Mullen show, of course, and we have a huge special guest, formerly known in the Chronicle, but obviously more previously with The Athletic, it is Chris Woff. Chris, welcome to the Greenwood and Mullen show here on Newcastle Fans TV. Well, thank you very much for having me. Hello, everyone. Yeah, it's uh, Chris is a very respected journalist, Sam, that we've always wanted to try and get on. He's been a friend of the channel before. He's been on the radio show previously. We actually did an interview after... Newcastle beat Manchester City, which seems many moons ago, um, if you believe it or not, Sam. So yeah. to get Chris on was brilliant. Well, that was before my time when Chris was on the radio show. I don't think you know this, Johnny, actually, but if you remember when I first started writing for Newcastle Fans TV before I officially joined, um, I used to I sent an article or two to Chris for some feedback and some advice, oh. and um, which he kindly enough gave me. So I'm forever grateful. But yeah, it's finally uh, great to have Chris on our little show. Yeah, no, I wish, I wish it was. I wish it was better times to be on terms of Newcastle United. But obviously, we can't have everything. And, and if you follow Newcastle United, then you'll all know that as well. That you've just got to just got to come on when, if and when. And usually, it's it's pretty rubbish. So, <laughs> I was just yeah. going to say, Chris, because I was thinking these articles aren't too bad. <laughs> now I know where he's got it from. Um, <laughs> but uh, talking about Newcastle was a lot more positive back then. We'll have to start with the game on Monday night against Arsenal, which obviously you covered with the Athletic, and it was a tough watch if we're going to be polite about it. Steve Bruce said the gloves were off. Uh, the gloves were off, Chris. How much were yes. Newcastle put in? Well, that, that was that was it. Steve Bruce said, said the gloves. I mean, it was weird when he used the term gloves off. That was his pretty much press conference on Friday, and. He wasn't really actually talking about his team in general. He was sort of basically talking about that. He, he said he's now going to do it my way, and and it was it wasn't clear whether he was talking about the gloves are off in terms of the players haven't been listened to him, or he's wanted to do things differently and hasn't at this stage. And it was it was a really weird metaphor to use, but that, that's what he said on Friday. He was very strong. He used some very strong language about his about his team. He called them friggin' hopeless. He called them absolute sh one Timmy te. And it was, it was a very, very blunt pressure away. Basically, he tried to show contrition, but at the same time, almost draw a line in the sand. And I think that that's why there's been so much analysis on what happened at Arsenal because Bruce made out as if this is this is a new this is the, this is a fresh fresh sheet. This is this is a new start. And we've had 18 months and not clear on who exactly has been picking the team or why he's done things in the first 18 months. There's no clarity in that whatsoever. But he raised expectations that things were going to be different. And there was eight changes to the team, which is the first time any Newcastle manager in Premier League history has made eight changes between one game and another. Some of them were injury and COVID enforced, but the majority were actually his decisions. It was back to four four two as many of us expected, but when the team, I mean, we'd all we'd had that information during the day that it was going to be four four two, but when the team sheet came out, I couldn't work out how it was going to be four four two because it wasn't it wasn't four four two with conventional wingers. It's Miguel Almiron who can play out wide but is better in the centre, and then Joe Linton who is not a winger, and I, I, I 
in that hour before the actual game between the teams she'd been announced in the match, I just couldn't see how it was going to be 4-4-2. But it was a genuine 4-4-2. And for 45 minutes, it was slightly better in terms of shape-wise. I thought Newcastle were okay. That Arsenal were poor, but they didn't really concede many chances. Almiron carried the ball pretty well, but final ball was lacking. But then second half was awful, and it was just really more of the same. And I wrote an analysis piece for the athletic, looking at all of the main statistics in terms of offensively touches in the box shots on goal xg all these sorts of things and also shots conceded and goals conceded and Newcastle are actually worse in all of them they've been on average this season so if this was the line in the sand then unfortunately it was an awful start to Bruce's way it seemed really bizarre because the pre-match press I'll come back to the shape and the whole setup of the team a bit later on I'm sure as I'm sure we will Johnny but Chris the way he went about that pre-match press, it just seemed like he was setting himself up for a massive fall with the the, the language he used. Is the pressure really starting to tell on him? Is, is this really the beginning of the end? Or is In it terms going to be of, is it the for a while longer? Is it the beginning of the end? That That's a question I can't really answer because throughout Bruce's tenure so far, it's tended to be that when he's needed a positive result, he's got one. And if they were to win one of the next two, for example, then there would still be a, a reasonably healthy gap to, to those below. And it's, it's about the teams below winning them. And I think his position really comes under threat if and when... Newcastle look like they are going to actually drop into the relegation zone or just about there. If they lose the next two and Fulham and, and um, West Brom were to get more positive results, then maybe that could come sooner rather than later. But there's a there's a sneaking suspicion that I have that just the way that it's been with Bruce, he might nick a positive result here or there. But in terms of Friday and the rhetoric, in some ways, actually, like that he came in the press conference and air-showed contrition for, for, for the Sheffield United game, what I didn't like was that he portrayed it as if that was... He called it a hand grenade and he, and he compared it to Brentford. He compared it to Norwich last season. He compared it to Leicester away last season and made out as if these are sort of isolated incidents. But really, they're sort of the, the nadir and, and the trend is in terms of performances, most Newcastle fans would say that, that actually they're just when the results really have gone wrong. But a lot of the performances have trended towards that. But then what I also liked on Friday was that he, he did basically, for him to, to come out and be a bit bullish. Now, you want to see that. If he's the head coach and believes himself, you want to see that. There was still a lack of detail in what his plan was going to be. And I thought his language, I thought he was wrong to use the language he did. And I suspect that over the course of the weekend, he realised that as well. Because in his interview on Sky pre-game, he almost rode back on the idea that it was it was a complete reset because he, he was asked about playing 4-4-2 and whether it was going to be 4-4-2. And he said, well, that's nothing new. We've done that eight times a season. I've, half games I've, I've played with, with two up front. So I think he realised that he'd raised expectations almost certainly for the wrong match, that Newcastle were highly unlikely to go to Arsenal and suddenly be this attacking side where they're going to create a lot of chances. And then he rode back again after the match. And actually, after the match, his rhetoric changed again. And suddenly, rather than Sheffield United having been this frigging hopeless performance and absolute, as he described it on Friday, suddenly it became, well, for 45 minutes, we were very bad, but we got beat by a, a dodgy VAR penalty decision. So all of that has changed. And so I do think he does, he did look after the game. I thought he looked physically shattered. And, and some of his answers suggested to me that, it, that, that, that he is looking fatigued. And that's understandable. And, and on a human level, I know that a lot of supporters out there go, well, I don't care. Well, on a human level, it's hard not to actually feel from that sense. But I did get slightly enraged by and infuriated by the, those answers changing after the game and the fact that the rhetoric does seem to have changed again. Yeah, it's um, 
it's it's not looking good for Steve Bruce at the minute. And a question that's been asked by a lot of fans in particular, Chris, and I hope you can share some light into this, is that do we think that the players are playing for the manager? Because eight changes, as you mentioned, more than any other manager going in from one Premier League game to the next Premier League game. You asked a question as well, post-match, about three and four at the back. He's struggling with the formation. He's struggling with the players that he's got at his disposal. And is he improving those players? In terms of is he improving those players, I think there's very few individual examples where you can say that, that he has improved players. I'm not sure there are many. Kieran Clark, you could maybe argue to an extent, although I think he was fairly consistent. Anyway, Carl Darlow is the fact that he's in the team and he's playing very well. We didn't really see that. Rafa Benitez did not trust him previously. So there's a there's a couple of potential examples there. But then you look at the likes of Sean Longstaff and you'd say you, you couldn't say that he's progressed. Isaac Hayden, I think the same as he's probably been before. There hasn't necessarily been any progress there. I look across, I think Jamal Lascelles has regressed in, in, in many senses. I don't see many players other than that who really have improved over time. Other players playing from it's, it's a difficult question to us answer, and you always have various different agendas at the, tra- at the training ground. So you speak to various different different sources and different people, and, and they're always discontented people. Even at, even when the team is winning, those players who aren't in the team can be discontented. So yeah, there are some some players there who are frustrated, but I think there are other players who who do like them, and, and, and it isn't working. I think there is a lot of confusion though. George Clark and I wrote a piece on over the weekend, sort of looking at the issues that Newcastle had. And I think the part of the issue that had again this time was Steve Bruce's promise and change, but change has been almost constant, certainly this season at Newcastle. They've played their switch formation nine times. They've played six different formations. Personnel are in and out of the team all the time. There was a, there was a study, I think, uh, from CIE yesterday that day about how Newcastle have the fewest uh, percentage of players who've played the most minutes for their team in the Premier League. They, they, there's no consistency in selection. And part of that has been injury-enforced and COVID-enforced. And they, they have, there are all those mitigating circumstances. But th- there's a lack of sort of clarity and detail into what players are meant to do. And I think part of the the, the, issue, the struggles that have been exacerbated for, for Joe Linton and, and Almiron is that they're two players who, when I speak to people who've coached and worked with them before, they need clear, detailed plans. And if you take Joe Linton, for example, his best performances have been as a second striker or as a number 10, but then he hasn't consistently played there afterwards. He, he played well against Burnley, was then shifted out to right midfield in a 4-1-4-1 against Manchester United. And, he's been, and then he, he's back in left wing last night, having been dropped last week. Miguel Almiron's been shifted all the way around and we know he isn't really an out-and-out winger. The best football, probably, of the Steve Bruce era, either side of Project Restart, was Alan Saint-Maximin was playing and he has he has been without Alan Saint-Maximin, although Alan Saint-Maximin for the first part of this season wasn't particularly as effective as he had been and had been shunted around as well. But Miguel Almiron played as number 10 in that, in that system in a 4-2-3-1. That is the best, in my opinion, that is the best football we've seen from Steve Bruce's side over about a five or six week period. I think they played well, that they're, they're scored goals. Yes, they conceded a few more, but they, they looked a bit more balanced in that sense. And for some reason, he moved away from that again, partly injury-enforced, partly this idea he can't play with the back four against bigger sides. And he's never really, he's been scratching around all season and he's never really been able to discover any sort of consistency with that this year. Sam, I hate to say that you're right, but <laughs> you've, been, you've been harping on for ages about four-two-three-one for a long, long time. Oh, and you've been saying yeah. consistently that it shouldn't be our preferred formation. Why do you think Steve Bruce hasn't gone for that, Sam? I don't know, but because the thing is, I was never more intrigued to see a Steve Bruce Newcastle United lineup as I was 
for that Arsenal game last night at time of recording. And then to see it, and it's just to see four four two. You just oh, I mean, surely four four two is so outdated now, Chris, that it it really just can't work, and it's just such a big letdown. Given what he said in his press conference, we were expecting something completely new and different, and his way, whatever that means. I've seen as though he's been in the job eighteen months, but surely four four two and five at the back can't work. Surely, look at the squad we've got. Four two three one just makes sense to me. I don't know about you. Well, four two three one does make sense to me, and I don't necessarily have a problem with the idea that, that Newcastle could switch different formations. And Bruce was making that point again last night, and and yeah, have that flexibility is good. And I mean, if you look at the statistics, actually, they it's in sort of the last twelve months that their record playing with three at the back is awful. That is caveated by the fact the majority of the time that is against sort of top half sides, but they also include sort of failures to beat the likes of Crystal Palace, failures to beat. Uh, the likes of Sheffield United last time out, failure to beat Norwich. But 4-4-2, I don't have a problem in itself with 4-4-2. I understand when people say, oh, it's outdated. I, I do think that there can still be a place for 4-4-2. But what I had an issue with on Monday was it wasn't really 4-4-2 in terms of this is exactly how I want to play. The, the, in terms of getting a consistent idea from Bruce throughout his time as to how he wants to play has been very difficult. At first, he talked about front foot football. Then he retreated from that when he realised that Newcastle was struggling. And he tried for the back Leicester away last season. They got hammered. And he shifted back from that, said the players weren't comfortable. Eventually, when they were stopped scoring goals, he went to 4-2-3-1. And, and he, he made it out as if he'd always wanted to play with four at the back and to play with two strikers, be the, two up front, be that two strikers or one off, off the other. But then he rode back on, on the four-man defence not so long ago. The only thing he's really stuck to is that idea he wants two bodies up front through the middle somewhere. But he's also talked in the past about wanting wide men to get the ball in the box. Well, he played Andy Carroll away at Arsenal in the FA Cup and he played Andy Carroll on Monday night up front. Neither game did he have genuine width in terms of wingers who could cross the ball. He played wing-backs in, with a five in the FA Cup game, wing-backs who really were actually full-backs. And then against Arsenal on Monday night, he played with a, 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 a really a number ten, two number 10s as wide players. And so he didn't get any crosses into the box either. And that, that's what I just find a little bit strange is if he was going to play that system, if this is his way, then why wasn't it Why wasn't it clearly right? We are going to attack wide. We're going to get the ball into the box. And we're going to get an Andy Carroll. And it might not have worked, but at least that would have been clear. This is the strategy. Whereas I almost felt like it was a sort of halfway house of, I'll put as many forwards as I can into this team. The players I think that people want to see and let's hope that that sort of works. And we'll put two up front because that's sort of what I want to do and it just seemed a bit of a halfway house and then I, I go back to the situation that baffles me most is, is the right back situation and I just cannot understand what exactly is going on um, I mean he, he started the season with DeAndre Edlin, Newcastle tried to sell him last summer they had spent the whole of the summer trying to sell him although they butchered it because they, they almost took it for granted that he was going to go and then didn't really solve the situation so he ended up sticking around, wasn't seen for three or four months uh, it switched between Kraft and Mankiel, even Jacob Murphy playing as a wing-back. Then, all of a sudden, partly injury and COVID enforced, Yedlin comes into the team, becomes first-choice right-back, 
And then all of a sudden, Emil Kraft comes back on Monday night. Inexplicably, no real reason as to... And so there's no sort of continuity and clarity then. I think that position basically sums up everything that's going on and every and all the confusion in Newcastle United at the moment because it doesn't... There is no clarity on what exactly the direction is, what exactly Steve Bruce wants and the players in each of these positions. And that, for me, is is, is the main problem and why... Is, is part of the reason why the circumstances are as they are now. Chris, I think you must be listening to our videos because we've been complaining <laughs> for six months about right backs. I feel like I feel like I always talk about right backs with Sam. Now Sam yeah. said before, I think it was was it before after the Leeds game potentially that he's Emil Kraft is the best right back in a back four. Now I disagreed that, but I disagree that with Javier Manquio, and I don't even rate Javier Manquio. I think he's he's not good enough for Newcastle. And that just tells you where we're at. Well, I think I think the 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 problem that a lot of certainly a right back Newcastle have players who have certain strengths but also have glaring weaknesses. So DeAndre yeah. Yedlin has a lot of pace which can get him out of certain situations, but positionally he really struggles and his, his crossing hasn't been brilliant recently either, but he can get forward. Javier Manquillo, I think, is, is sort of average at everything and, 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 and maybe is the sort of safer one in that sense as he can defend a little bit, can get forward a bit more. And there was a certain about a twelve month period where I thought he was doing pretty well. Emil Kraft is probably stronger defensively, but certainly struggles going forward. And pace-wise, if someone attacks him, he can be really caught out. And and that and and I, and I have sympathy for Steve Bruce in that sense, and that, that some of the players are limited in, in certain positions. And and but I also think that that you can hide some of those limitations, or you work on them, and you work on a sort of strategy. It's like you take the other side, for example, against Arsenal. Jamal Lewis comes back into the side. And he's got Joe Linton, who doesn't, who isn't a left winger in front of him. And so Jamal Lewis, who's been struggling recently anyway, has had a bit of a knee injury, comes back into the team. And he has no real... I don't say Joe Linton didn't... I know a lot of people saying Joe Linton didn't work hard. I thought Joe Linton was poor, but I don't think it was necessarily the case that he didn't work hard. But he also doesn't know that position that well. He doesn't know exactly where he's meant to track the, the wide man coming forward, how you're meant to follow in certain positions. And that sort of exposes Jamal Lewis to an extent as well. And that's where partnerships haven't been allowed to build. In midfield, the, the change in midfield from week on week, it goes from uh, Hendrick was in the team uh, along with, with Isaac Hayden and Joe Longstaff. And then the week after, he, he, he puts Matty Longstaff and, and John Joe Shelby together. I'm not sure I've ever started a Premier League game. I might, I might be wrong there, but I certainly haven't much in, in midfield together. And there's there's no real time to develop these partnerships. Shelby hadn't been seen since Brentford. Matty Longstaff had been out of the team for two games for, for reasons of which I'm not entirely sure why he didn't, because it looked like he'd been rested at Arsenal in the FA Cup and was going to come into the side. Uh, against Sheffield United, and then didn't, and it, it, it's all a bit curious at the moment. And I think that 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 it's just raising more questions than answers. Yeah, um, Johnny made it sound like I'm a fan of Emil Kraft. There, I mean, I'm not. <laughs> it's just that I said he was the best of a really, really bad bunch. Um, one thing that did intrigue me um, last night as well: no Dwight Gale, no Federico Fernandez, no Fabian Share on the bench or in the squad at all. Um, I might be putting two and two together and making five, but they're all out of contract at the end of the season. Did that bear anything to do with that decision not to have them in the squad, or are they just injured, simple as? I don't think that that had any bearing. I mean, Dwight Gale, he explicitly was asked about, and he said that Gale had been injured, uh, been ill, sorry, and he didn't think it was 
they tested him. They didn't think it was COVID related, but he'd had symptoms, and so that the tested that they basically he'd been away from the squad because he'd been ill. So that was that was what was explained away about why he wasn't involved. The other two, I think Federico Fernandez was sort of fatigue, but that wasn't that wasn't confirmed by Bruce after the game. So I don't know that for sure. Fabian Cher, I'm not I'm not entirely sure. I presume it must have been injury or not. I, I don't I don't know that for certain. But the the, the one thing that one of those who I may say there is. Potentially something in what you've just said there will be Fabian Shea. He's never really been a Steve Bruce style player, certainly in a four. Benitez didn't necessarily wasn't convinced he could play in a four either. Bruce hasn't been convinced he could play in a four, so that might have contributed. But I have no information. The kind of I, I, I presumed he was injured, but he Bruce wasn't asked that explicitly, so I don't know for certain on that front. One thing that I think a lot of fans will want to know, Chris, is will Mike Ashley panic? Because you look down the line, and Steve McLaren gave, was given a lot more time, and fortunately, Rafa Benitez didn't have enough games to save a sinking ship. Shearer came in, relegation. Now, we weren't expecting Shearer to get us out of it in eight to ten games, whatever it was. I think it was only eight games that Shearer got. And, he, and again, it, it took us to the last day. Do you think that Mike Ashley will not make the same mistake if it gets worse? Or is he not even thinking about changing the manager at the minute? I mean, history would suggest that the Mike Ashley doesn't learn, and so that that is a concern. And 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 I thought the supporters trust letter talking about potentially sleepwalking into relegation was was very prescient the other day, and I thought it was it was it was a very well worded letter and, and and really captured the mood of certainly when I speak to a lot of Newcastle fans, be it on social media or anecdotally. In that front, will Mike Ashley learn from this? I think that it's slightly different in the sense that then he didn't necessarily know that the club could potentially be sold. This time he has that carrot of a, of a potential £305 million deal, which we all know is, is, is held up at the moment. And we don't know if it'll definitely happen or and whether arbitration will succeed. But there is the potential that it, that it can and it will. And if it does, then he will want the full money. And if Newcastle go down, Newcastle are worth less. Nobody's going to pay £305 million for a championship club. And so I think that, that Mike Ashley will be looking at the situation. What is slightly different this time to, to back then is that actually Newcastle aren't even halfway through the season. I know they're nearly there, but the, the way that... Newcastle, in in my view, are looking at things as well. There's still time for the for this to sort of turn around. There's been a very difficult run of fixtures either side of Christmas. There's been the COVID situation, which has been seen as a, as a mitigating factor. The loss of Jamal Lascelles for a long period. The loss of uh, and continued loss of Alan Sam Maximan. And so I think that there is some sympathy for Bruce in, in that sense. But equally. If in the next two games Newcastle lose the next two matches and then all of a sudden uh, Fulham get a win and West Brom get a win, then I think once it looks as if Newcastle are actually really in danger of dropping into the bottom three, I think Mike Ashley he will look at the situation and will think that, that, that maybe this needs a change. But for now, my understanding is that, the, that he retains the faith of the board. They're not looking to make that, that immediate change. They still think... Things will turn around, but I think time is running out for Bruce because he's searching around for those answers and he hasn't been able to get them anymore. He's looking increasingly desperate in terms of some of the decisions he's making, in terms of some of his public remarks. And I think that we saw, albeit reluctantly, that did eventually sack Steve McLaren in 2016. There is no, as far as I'm aware, Rafa Benitez-style figure in the waiting of the wings this time, which which is a slightly complicating factor because there was a ready-made 
an alternative there who'd presented himself to the club and there isn't necessarily that now. And so that is that is the one concern. But I do think that that if it looks like Newcastle are in a position where suddenly they are going to drop it in the bottom three, I do think that that may force Mike Ashley in action. I think it's no coincidence that Mark Hughes has just suddenly put his head above the parapet again, saying he's ready to come back into management, which would just be awful. But there you go. Um, <laughs> um, how difficult is it to get kind of straight answers and to kind of come back at, at Bruce once he's given an answer in a press conference now that they're all done on Zoom and you're not there in person? How does it differ? Zoom press conferences are more difficult um, and that's just just the nature of how they are and that's not really having a go at anyone in terms of the, the fact that we still get Zoom press conferences, still get to question the manager and it's just by the very nature of how you have a conversation over Zoom, it's not quite the same as being in a room, you can't sort of bounce off one another and journalists traditionally, certainly in terms of the written media, when you would question uh, someone, it would, you would tend to sort of follow on from each other. And uh, whereas, because you you don't really have that feel for the room, it tends to be that you divert from one thing to another, and it's more difficult to come back. And you can be at a point muted immediately, and so you can ask a question, and the manager may have deliberately misinterpreted. They may have not heard the question. They may have misunderstood the question, and so you can't necessarily follow up and say, "No, what I actually meant is that." And so it, it is a lot more difficult. It's a lot more difficult to to follow that sort of path and, and, and to keep going in, in the same direction and in because you're sitting at home and you're not in the same room as other people you don't know who's going to ask a question when you tend to then start thinking right well what am I going to ask here and sometimes that can break the flow of the press conference as well because someone asks a question on one thing then all of a sudden you get called upon and, you, and your questions are something different so it deviates from one specific subject or topic to another and so that is frustrating I mean it, it's Steve Bruce is it, it's very good for journalists in the sense that that he will answer questions no matter what the topic. I don't think that that necessarily serves him particularly well, but in terms of from a journalistic point of view, he, he will always try and answer a question. It may not be a clear answer, it may not necessarily be what fans want to hear, but he, he will try and answer a question. What was different on Friday, actually, ahead of the Arsenal game, was that he had a very clear... Well, he, he had. A, I was going to say he had a very clear message. He had something he wanted to say which he basically repeated over and over again, no matter what the question. I wouldn't say it was a clear message because I still don't actually know exactly what the clear message was. But he came in with a consistent theme that he wanted to stick to. And no matter what the line of questioning was, he dragged it back towards that. Whereas often he does veer off in different directions and he doesn't necessarily uh, remain consistent in some of his answers. So, yes, it is it is more difficult. And I know, I know a lot of fans out there are going, oh, he's not being asked the tough questions. Well, he, he has been asked the tough questions. I've, I've been in press conferences where other people have asked tough questions. I've asked him tough questions after uh, the, the game against Sheffield United. I asked him uh, what he thought of supporters and whether he'd considered resigning. He has been asked these questions. Uh, have Has every single thing been asked that we would like to ask him and that supporters would like to be asked? No, but we've given a limited time to do so. You usually only have one question, then suddenly you're muted, and it, 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 there's no flowing in and out of it. And so it isn't necessarily as easy as, as, as we would all like it to be. And it, it is more difficult in, in the Zoom press conference, but, but journalists are asking these questions. I, what I think is misinterpreted out there is, is Unless you're a journalist, you don't really understand how the press conference works. So, so everyone, for a pre-match press conference, you will see a certain section of the press conference, which is is press conference for the broadcast media. But afterwards, there is a separate press conference 
usually of about 15 to 20 minutes where written journalists ask questions and that bit is not recorded and put out there. And so that's why you see if his press conference first part of it comes out at 12 o'clock on a Friday. You may then see the next section at 5 o'clock on the Friday night or 10, 10.30 on the Friday evening. That's journalists who've asked those questions. And so supporters aren't always seeing those questions being asked, aren't always seeing the hard questions being asked, but they are being asked. I, I, I sure fans know, but you may, you may not want to believe me, and, and that's fine and I understand that, but Bruce is being asked these questions. It's a great insight because not many people probably would have known that there is two separate press conferences, really, even though it's the same press conference, essentially, it's two different press conferences. But I think one question that some fans will want to want to ask Steve Bruce is who's coming in in January? And it looks like that Steve Bruce is looking at loan signings in particular, permanent signings just already on the table, Newcastle, mainly due to COVID, Chris, I believe that financially don't have the money or use most of their money in the summer with the signings of Callum Wilson and Jamal Lewis. Can you get us any insight into what Newcastle are thinking of doing? Is it is it loan players? Is it in the Premier League? Or is it foreign players that might be coming into the club? Or is anybody coming into Newcastle in January? Well, you're right that the, the finances have been hit hard. And that, that's not just at Newcastle. And if you look around the Premier League, actually, business is, is substantially down on where it would usually be anyway. And, and a lot of clubs are sort of struggling to, to find out exactly what, what they want to do. And Newcastle need to offload players as well off, off the wage bill. We've already seen Rolanda Aaron's goal, but they still have Christian Atsu, they still have Ashraf Lazar, they still have Henri Savé. And if they want to bring anyone in, they also have a full 25-man squad. So they need to let someone go, be that DeAndre Edlin or be that someone else. And it, Otherwise, they're going to have even more players that they're paying to not be in the Premier League squad. So there's a difficult balancing act there. And with little money out there for other clubs to spend, then it's it's even more difficult than ever to offload those players who Newcastle have tried to get rid of for two or three years. In terms of what they're trying to do, it is primarily loan signs. There isn't, there isn't much money there. Newcastle have reined in their budget substantially. Bruce's budget was affected last summer and it's been affected again because gate receipts aren't coming in and Newcastle have had to pay a television rebate and the and the like. So Bruce has been focusing on the loan market. He has made, I don't want to call it a play, but he's basically spoken to other sort of the top half Premier League clubs and tried to find out which players may or may not become available. Uh, Tamori at Chelsea was someone Newcastle liked, but it became clear that AC Milan were going to try and pay money because it was just it really wasn't feasible. Last summer they missed out on Ross Barkley. He's asked about sort of attacking midfielders going round that they like Tamori, Gray, these sort of players, but they're also all looking abroad. But the issue Newcastle have abroad is that it's not as easy to bring in players because of the new Brexit rules, certainly from Europe, which is a market Newcastle have tried to tap into a lot in the past. But some of the players. I've been told who they were going to potentially look at or had been sort of long to not targets necessarily, but have been on the radar for quite a while who may have provided a bit of an option. A, it, there's no guarantee that they get a work permit to be able to come in. So Newcastle could try and set up a deal which may fall through. Anyway, B, what Bruce wanted last summer was he wanted players who were Premier League ready in the sense that, that they didn't they weren't going to take time to acclimatise. And he picked the likes of Jamal Lewis over a few uh, candidates from the continent who were put to him because he didn't think that he, he thought that they would take time to adapt to the Premier League, and there's there's, there's that complicating factor as well. And and the the issue and this is this is my supposition. I don't know this, but if it, the club really went away from what has been their usual policy under Magashi last summer to spend all the money on Callum Wilson and to, to to go domestic and to bring in Hendrick and to bring in Ryan Fraser as well. 
if Steve Bruce is going to them and, and saying the same sort of thing this time around, is there a bit more hesitation on their part when basically you're saying, you came to me last summer, you said that these players were ready-made, this was going to work, take Callum Wilson out of the equation and none of the other signings have really made any sort of an impact whatsoever. So are we going to commit the same sort of finances to a deal to bring someone in domestically? And so there's all these complicating factors. And I still think Newcastle will do one or two bits of business between now and the end of the window, but it's becoming very difficult and they've already had a couple of deals sort of to get away from them. And it's a midfielder. He'd primarily like someone a bit more creative, but also a versatile sort of defender to give him a few more options there. That, that's He'd ideally also like a wide attacking player as well, but I think that they're, that they're sort of resigned to the fact that that's unlikely to happen. What I don't understand is, just to pick up on, on what you say about the interest in Tamori, I mean, that's all well and good. But why is he still chasing a centre-back when our best centre-half is on loan at Alaves and we've got three right-backs who are all horrific? Well, I, I, I mean, he would like... A right, I mean, the, 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 the honest answer is he would like players for a lot of positions, but that sort of isn't going to happen. And there is interest in bringing in a, either a left-back or right-back as well. I mean, I found it... It was interesting. It was sort of early December time and, and someone... And uh, I spoke to a couple of agents there. Oh, the castle are floating around. They, they want a left-back. And I was surprised by that at the time because we just signed... Jamal Lewis, and I think at the time there was concerns about Paul Dummett and whether he would come back. And I mean, obviously he's had more fitness issues since as well. And then hopefully he's all right and he, he finally gets injury free because he's he's had an awful year or so. Um, but right back, yeah, Newcastle have it strange between there. But the the reality is Newcastle have three right backs already. So although they could bring one in, they already have three. You can't decide which one likes best. Jandre Edlin though will let go last summer. Now he's in a very strange position, Edlin, where. He's sort of been in the team. He doesn't know whether the club still want to get rid of him. The club may have to if they want to bring someone in because they need to make room in the squad. It's all a very strange situation. And, and the, the the factor which is complicating everything, which Newcastle to a certain degree, I think, need to set aside and just think of the here and now, is is the is the potential takeover and whether it happens or not. Long-term decisions or medium-term decisions are being deferred because... Mike Ashley doesn't necessarily know if he's going to be owner anymore, but the, these issues are having an effect on what Steve Bruce can do in the transfer market or what Newcastle can do as a club in the transfer market. And so it, this this purgatory that Newcastle are in, takeover-wise, is, is now actually affecting the football as it did towards the end of last season, where there was this strange sort of situation of it felt like our old piece inside Ghost Ship Club, and you spoke to people in the round in saying how nothing was really happening and nobody knew what the sort of direction was. And that seems to be the case again now. And I just think that firm decision, firm decision making and firm question needs to happen internally. It doesn't happen often enough in my gosh, he's Newcastle United. It often happens too late. And that's why I understand when a lot of fans fear that this situation could just drag on indefinitely until what many see is the inevitable sacking of Steve Bruce at some stage when possibly it may be too late. Newcastle think that they've got the appointment right. They still think that Steve Bruce will lead them to safety. Steve Bruce last month came out and said that that was his remit, having gone on before about how top 10 was, was his ambition. He, to be fair, he still maintained that he wanted to finish top 10, but it was almost as if reality had sort of bitten. And this is this is Mike Ashley's Newcastle. And that, that's the one thing I thought that, that Gary Neville got and, and Jamie Carragher really got right on Monday night in their analysis on Sky Sports was that Newcastle United are stuck in this situation where Gashi Wett isn't going to get materially better. I do think things could be better than they are right now. I do think that uh, there could be far more 
extracted from these players. I think it's a better set of players than have been there in the past. But in terms of there is still going to be a glass ceiling, no matter who is in charge, as long as Mike Ashley is owner, because he has no ambition to progress the club. He now wants it out of his hands. And until that moment comes, I just fear that there's just going to be the constant the same when you cast United. You talk about that takeover, Chris, and there was a, the article that you and George put together when this bid had been basically told by everybody that it was going to happen. It was very, very close. And the, the Athletic didn't say, this takeover is done. It's the closest it's ever been, I think was maybe the exact words. But it, it obviously, it, it didn't go over the line for a couple of reasons. Where are we at with this takeover? You talk about Mike Ashley. I think it's probably to say that he's a willing seller. But is there a willing buyer? Is there anybody there that wants Newcastle United? Is it the previous ownership or previous ownership that was going to be with Amanda Staveley, the, the Ruben brothers and the Saudis? Is it somebody else? Or are we back to square one? Because a lot of people are hearing a lot of conflicted reports from other people saying that there's something could be happening where other people are saying, just be careful because look what happened last year. Where are we at right now? Well, I can only go with the, the, the information that I have and this is not to try and conflict any other reports are out there or just this is just the, the information I have and that that's that Mike Ashley would not be pursuing arbitration if he did not believe that there was still a chance that this deal could go through he wants this deal to go through he PIF did withdraw last summer and are still withdrawn my understanding is that they would return if a deal became possible if a takeover became possible and at the moment, it wouldn't pass the owners and directors test because the because PIF don't want to submit to the Premier League uh, jurisdiction, which is that they believe that the Saudi state would be the ultimate owner of the club. And so they want the Saudi state to undergo the owners and directors test. And until that point is either addressed at arbitration, which is, is what's going to what is due to happen soon. Mike Ashley has is, is, uh, employed two QCs to represent him and Newcastle United and their dispute with the Premier League on the point of, of how the owners and directors test has been um, enforced and, and what it means from that. And so we're sort of stuck in this sort of purgatory situation where until that happens and until we know whether he's been successful in arbitration and that maybe then opens up a potential avenue for the takeover to happen, that the, the buyers sort of still are there but not exactly there, if you see what I mean, in terms of they're not there ready to, 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 to take over the club right now because they would have to resubmit and come back because they've they've withdrawn. They they said that they'd withdrawn from the bid, but they would be willing to come back in if it's going to happen. So Mike Ashley's arbitration is fully um, endorsed by those who want to buy the club. They're still uh, keen to do so. There's been... Other people who have supposedly shown an interest or suggested they've shown interest over the last few months and maybe have been a little bit put off because they know that the Saudis are still waiting in the wings and and, and if it did become possible for a takeover to happen, that, that they think that eventually it would be the Saudis to take over. But it's all, it all is very much dependent on this Premier League arbitration. And, and we, we've seen all the reports over the last couple of days about being... Uh, allegedly now being available again in Saudi Arabia. There's conflicting reports on that being. I'm saying they know nothing about that. Other side are suggesting that it's a positive development. We'll have to wait and see how that goes. But obviously the sort of report, reproach, I can't believe that I'm still talking about geopolitics, but the sort of reproach between Qatar and Saudi Arabia may facilitate 
the possibility that going forward, BN would withdraw their sort of objections to it over piracy and the likes, and that therefore there could be some sort of a deal agreed. And then uh, Saudi Arabia could be involved in, in the purchase of Newcastle United. But it, it's all very, very complicated. Uh, my, but my answer, my, the short answer would be that there is still interest from the same buyers, but what it requires is, is arbitration to potentially open up an avenue and a pathway for it to happen, which as of yet hasn't taken place and as of yet isn't available. So for now, it's sort of this this, this stage where Mike Ashley remains on, and I certainly can't see that changing definitely before the end of the, the transfer window. Whether it happens between now and towards the end of the season, I, I don't know for certain. I don't know specific timelines. We'll just have to wait and see as to how arbitration goes and whether Mike Ashley gets the decision that he wants, which allows him to, to eventually sell the club. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, I haven't heard hashtag cans in months and it's nearly been going on for a year now and it could be going on for another year. It's just crazy how, I mean, only Newcastle United. There's There's been a takeover at Burnley in all this time and that just swans through like, it's, it's nothing. So it's just so frustrating and it could only happen at Newcastle, couldn't it? No, it's the it's the ultimate Newcastle United takeover. This is this is what it, that it's become. It, it, it's it's almost beyond parody, and it, it's takeover stories are awful to cover. And I, I, basically, my whole journalistic career has involved takeover. So basically, since as soon as I started um, at the Chronicle, journalist on his son, takeovers or potential takeovers overs have been just about in the offing, and they are really really difficult. And this one's been even more difficult because of all of the different elements that we've already mentioned: geopolitics, piracy. The prospective buyers having three different arms to them as well. You've got the Amanda Staveley and PCP. You've got the Rubin brothers. Then you've got, um, then you've got PIF, and then you've also got the Mike Ashley side of things. Then you've got the Premier League side of things, and you've got various different avenues of people saying different things and different claims and what's happened here and there. And they are so so difficult, and everyone has a different agenda when they're speaking about them. I mean, transfer stories can be difficult enough, but this is a, it's on a whole new level. It's, it's the the whole. The, the, the fact that it's also happened during a period when the world has been in lockdown also has been has been frustrating because it's almost like you can't escape this endless sense of purgatory and everything. It's it's it's, it's just been this daily grind. And, and so many Newcastle fans I know have struggled in terms of just trying to find, just wanting some positive information and it's just dragging on or there being negative information or not happening. And I, and I fully empathise with everyone out there who's been through this. But unfortunately, it is just a very, very complicated situation and one, as you say, could only really happen to Newcastle United. Oh, it is the ultimate soap opera in terms of football, isn't it? Newcastle United and the takeover. Um, obviously, Chris, you've been at the Athletic for a couple of years now and more recently, Alan Shearer has joined the team and there was a very passionate article about everything that's going on at Newcastle United um, with Alan's thoughts on everything that's going on. I thought it was quite a balanced argument on everything that's going on. Um how much have you relished the opportunity to say speak to the likes of Alan Shearer? Obviously, look at the articles that he's written so far. Has it just been brilliant to work with probably an idol, I suppose? Yeah, it's, it's been it's been uh, it's been it's been wonderful. I mean, George Cock, my colleague, usually works more directly with 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 with, with Alan Shearer. He's, he's, he's involved in a lot of the the columns that he writes, and I have been involved as well, and I've done a few Q and A's. And it, no, it is it is brilliant, and it's it's someone who. 
yeah, we all we all grew up watching and, and was and is the greatest player in Newcastle United's history in, in my view. And to have him as a, as a columnist, but not just about Newcastle. I mean, he writes columns about a lot of things. I thought his, his piece the other week where he was sort of analysing Timo Werner's struggles at Chelsea from an actual striker's point of view, technically what he's doing wrong and what he's going through was, was fascinating to see someone, the ultimate finisher, to explain what is going wrong there. But then... We always his, his opening piece for the Athletic. He spoke about Newcastle United, and he spoke he spoke a little bit about them, but it, he hadn't done a full Newcastle column, and there was always going to be obviously at some stage he was going to do that because it's it's his club, and he feels very passionately about them. And last week was was just felt like such a big moment that he he did come out and write a piece, and I agree with you, it was balanced, and he was he was honest within the piece and said he's conflicted because. It's his club, but he also and he also has very good friends there in Steve Bruce and Steve Harbour, and so it's difficult for him in terms of NASA. But then he was also honest about the, the situation: the football isn't good enough, and that really the club is is soulless and it has lost all hope. And I think he captured and crystallised what so many Newcastle fans feel, and why I think it was so important that Alan Shearer had come out and written this. Is, is it's all well and good if I write it or if another journalist up here writes it. But when, but when you see all these pundits coming out with all these views as there have been about Newcastle in the last few months and, and that Newcastle fans expect all this ridiculous sort of nonsense, when you have Alan Shearer, a respected pundit who's on every week on Match of the Day, coming out and saying, this is the actual situation of Mike Ashley's Newcastle. This is the reality of the situation. This is what all Newcastle fans are having to go through. I thought that was really important and that, that really hopefully helped to change a few of those outlooks out there and made people maybe sit up and go, actually, all right, hang on a second. This isn't just some Newcastle fans who don't like Steve Bruce for whatever reason. There, there are chronic problems at Newcastle which, which transcend Steve Bruce, but which have really come to the fore in the last few weeks and months because it looks like history is repeating itself for a third time that Newcastle may be heading for relegation again. Oh. Hopefully just, not. Go on, Sam. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, hopefully not. Jeez. Um, yeah, it was a brilliant piece from Alan Shearer and I just think it's really sad how, like himself, and we've seen Warren Barton, who we've had on this show, I seem to remember asking you for feedback the first time I met, uh, interviewed Warren Barton as well, Chris. Um, but he's been in the press recently speaking so passionately you can tell the love's still there and guys like Rob Lee and and all and all that lot from the entertainers and, and Sir Bobby Era, they're just neglected by the club and just have nothing to do with it. I mean Steve Harper's the closest you're gonna get. I just think it's really sad and it just comes down again to, to one man, doesn't it? Yeah, and that that has been such a, f- a frustrating part and, and I think a damaging part of, of, of the Mike Ashley Era that, that a lot of a lot of cl- club legends, people who mean a heck of a lot to both the club and more importantly its supporters, have, have become alienated or feel unwelcome and, and feel alienated. So you've seen it with Alan Shearer, you've seen it with Kevin Keegan, you've seen it with so many. And and, and this is history means something to, to, to football supporters, and, and that that isn't. I don't mean that in a sort of in a crass way, and I don't mean in a, in a flippant way. It, it it does because. There is a sense of community. It's it's what people in this area or supporters around the world of the club grew up aspiring to. These are that these are their heroes. These are the people they've looked up to. These are people who have helped create wonderful memories for them and let them believe and let them hope. And yet, removing them to have any connection really from the football club to almost become disassociated degree or distanced from the club is 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 awful. And that that's why. If there was a take-up, that would be the f- one of the first things that I would suggest to any potential new owners to do is to reach out to those people again and really bring the club back together and bring its 
it's it's legends and it's 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 the players who played for it before who feel distance. Bring them back in to the fold and make them make something of them because other clubs really do make a thing of of, of the their former players. And Newcastle United used to, and it just feels it feels so cold, and it just it, it just mirrors everything that we see from the club, and it, it's. I, I think it's really, really sad, and it's it, it's for me almost one of the most damaging elements that, and also the, the way that I think supporters are often treated or often neglected and ignored, as we've seen throughout the pandemic, but also before, where almost it seems like supporter views aren't as important as as, as they certainly should be, and supporters are without without supporters, the football club, in my view, is absolutely nothing, and that that is. That is sometimes, in my view, forgotten about, and those at the club may disagree, and and fair enough. But I see little evidence to suggest that I am wrong. I see a lot of evidence to suggest that I am right, and I think a lot of supporters feel that way. They feel alienated from the club, as a lot of the former players and managers do, and it's essential that they are as soon as possible brought back on board. I couldn't have said it better myself. Could not have said it better myself. And um, finally, Chris. What is the future going to be like for Newcastle United in 2021? Obviously, there is no fans in the ground. <laughs> I'd like to think I'm always a half glass, like half full cup sort of person. I'd like to think that first game of the season, next season, regardless Newcastle are in the Premier League or the Championship, fans will be in the in the stadium. Do you think that 2021 can be a good year for Newcastle? Can there be a light at the end of the tunnel? Um, and can we? hope have we got a bit of hope going into this year because that's a one word that Newcastle fans are I think we're lacking at the football club I mean it is that word hope I think it is it is difficult in many ways to see the hope particularly as, as to what's going on the moment but I do I do think that there could be positivity going forward I, I don't want to raise any sort of expectations I say I have no information to suggest that a potential takeover will pass or is going to pass at, at, at any point and it may still not come to pass but there is still that possibility and as, as long as that possibility remains then it remains the idea that, that, that Mike Ashley may move on and things could improve at some point it will there will come a day for Steve Bruce where by either he gets the, the, the positive results he needs to drag Newcastle away from relegation zone otherwise the, the hierarchy will simply have to act and, and, and so in that sense it won't be a positive move because Newcastle have been dragged into relegation zone, but there will be a change of, of head coach if that scenario comes to pass. And therefore, there will be at least fresh ideas or something fresh and something different. Do I have any faith in the current hierarchy to make an exciting and correct appointment? No, I don't. And I'm sure most Newcastle fans don't. But at least it might be something different if that comes to pass. Hopefully, and fans out there may disagree, but I would like to see Newcastle start winning and then we won't reach that scenario. I know some Newcastle fans are past the point of wanting that to happen. But if they were to win the next couple of games, then that would at least ease some relegation fears. And like you, I hope that at some point in the second half of the year, at least some supporters will be back in St. James's Park. I don't know whether it'll be all supporters. I'm sure it'll be phased when the first do come back in, but hopefully we'll start to see some supporters come back. And if that takeover was to happen, then we may even see the, the return of the likes of war flags and, and, and things like that. And that may give us all a bit of enthusiasm again. But just having supporters back in, for me personally, would be a huge thing. I know some fans would be thinking, well, if it's still this, the current situation is now, I wouldn't necessarily want to come back. But I just think football is missing such a huge element not having supporters there. And so that, that's that's the most positive I can be other than saying that it's the, the, the takeover remains the unknown element, the unknown quantity, timescale, 
completely unknown as well. But that there is still a little bit of hope there. We don't know whether that hope will prove to be misplaced in the end, but it isn't completely dead in the water yet. But it's just, as we've said before, become the ultimate Newcastle United takeover. 100%. Well, hopefully, I'll say hope, hopefully, that uh, we can all go into a pub, have a couple of pints, watch Newcastle, win those a draw, we'll still have a smile on our face when we leave the ground. How about you, Sam? Oh, yeah, we live in hope, don't we? So, uh, <laughs> God knows when I'll be getting back up to the northeast to to see a game, but uh, fingers crossed it's sooner rather than later. 100%. Chris, it has been an absolute pleasure talking all things Newcastle in its current day, and hopefully, as we said, hopefully again, there is a positive future. But thank you very much for bringing an insight to everything that's going on with Newcastle United Football Club at the minute. No problem, anytime. Again, if you want to support this podcast, please subscribe to it. It's on... a different podcast that I podcast out all of them, Spotify. just all of them <laughs> tell us if we're doing anything good anything bad and who we'd like on in the future that'd be absolutely superb like and subscribe to Newcastle Fans TV and Newcastle Fans TV Extra and for myself Sam and Chris Woff we'll see you all very very soon